Um, well, good morning, everyone. So we are in class number <clears throat> four of conversion. Uh, it's a seven-week series altogether, um, and this is <clears throat> following three different classes. The first class that we went over had to do with the necessity of conversion, and the emphasis was that conversion makes something new, not nice, okay? It is... <clears throat> It is a not, it's not a mere niceness that happens when someone is converted. It's, it's, it's not enough that someone is nice or morally upright or is kind to their neighbor. No, there's a fundamental issue. There's a fundamental problem in the human condition that needs to be remedied. And it takes a lot more than simply moral reform on the outside. So the week one was, do we even need to be converted? New, not nice. Week two, we talked about since we do need to be converted, what's clear is that God has to be the one who does it. I cannot convert myself any more than I can make myself born. I can't convert myself. I can't make myself alive any more than someone who is dead can just raise up. And so it necessitates <clears throat> God coming from outside of us and making us alive called regeneration. Okay? And then he... And then he converts us. He gives us repentance and faith. We turn from our sin, which we'll get to in week three. So th that was the necessity of, uh, of conversion and God giving us that conversion. And then week three, we talked about disciples, not decisions. It's not a mere decision to turn and follow Christ as if I can make the decision as if I was going over and turning on the light switch and expecting the lights to come on. Um, or I choose to wear this versus wear that. This is a, I am fundamentally sinful and broken, and I need God's outside um, gifting to me to be able to turn from my sin and to trust in Christ by faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. We, we looked at how both repentance and faith are a gift, and at the same time, it is on us to turn. And so we are sovereignly given these gifts, and then we exercise them and turn to Christ by faith and we're converted. So um, up to this point, does anybody have any questions over anything we've gone over or any thoughts? If, if there's, there's the body of Christ here, we're all family in the room, so we can, we can definitely benefit from the wisdom that everybody has. Does anybody have anything to add to what we've gone over so far or any questions? And I'll try to repeat them for the recording. All right. Well, today's class, we're going to look at week four. It's called Holy, Not Healed. And the focus is going to be the, the downstream effects of anyone who is converted, okay? The consequences of anyone who is converted, okay? If someone is converted, that means there are effects later on that happen, and those effects bear witness to the fact that they were converted. That's what we're going to be talking about. So implications of conversion in the Christian life. The overarching point I want to emphasize is that when God converts us sinners, the inevitable result will be our holiness, which is positional holiness, as we'll see, and it's also practical holiness lived out. Um, 
So one, one scripture I came across this week, and I kind of forgot, and it would have been, it, Ryan may have brought it up, and I'm not quite sure, but 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's a really sweet picture, and it kind of underscores the importance um, of understanding that it's not enough to, to merely kind of cut down and get to this level and fix that up, and now you're good. No, conversion means you go down below the root, and you cut the whole tree out, and you pull it out, and... There, there is a new nature. Remember, con- um, regeneration in a person means that God is taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. And he gives us his Holy Spirit and he causes us to walk in his ways. Um, it's a fundamental change completely. Um, and so in a, a good illustration of that regenerating work in someone is 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's really what we're talking about. Uh, we're really talking about someone who is converted is no longer what they used to be. They used to, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they were, we used to, all of us, followed the course of this world. We had a different master. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now alive in the sons at work. I mean, in the sons of disobedience, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was, that was our position before. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, and he goes on, and he did a fundamental work. We are no longer that, what we used to be on that course, like we talked about last time, with, in Pilgrim's Progress, it, it, it wasn't like how it used to be when we were in the city of destruction, if you've read the book, where we're following Apollyon, Satan, he is our master, and we're just doing everything we want, everything that's right in our own eyes. No, we have a fundamental change. We have an awareness of our sin. We see our sin, and we see our need for a Savior. We have fleed from the wrath to come. And we've embraced Jesus by faith, and he has taken our burden off, and it's rolled down into the grave, and we've, we've died with him and raised with him, and now we're in him. So it's a fundamental change. Um, so to, to begin with, on this topic of holiness, the, the inevitable was result of someone who's been converted, um, I want to br- bring up three different points. If you look at your outline, uh, illustrations of true conversion. Uh, first, letter A is the aftermath of a storm. Letter B is Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And letter C is Paul, persecutor of the church. Can I have a volunteer to read um, for the Zacchaeus part, Luke 19, 5 to 10? Thank you, brother. Luke 19. And then um, who, could someone take the Philippians 3, 5 to 8 passage? Anyone? Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So... We'll do, I'm going to do A first, and then I'll, I'll let you know, man, for, num- for letter B. So the aftermath of a storm. Um, if, you know, rather recently, very sadly, in the last month, there were all those reports of those tornadoes that came through different parts of the Midwest and different parts of the country. Um, I, I think I heard in Kentucky it touched down, uh, a tornado touched down and, like, went 200 miles, just, just, just destroying things in its path. You hear of hurricanes that come through, and when they leave, when the hurricane leaves, it, it leaves the condition of the place different than when before it got there. 
and the, the picture is this, is that when someone is converted by God, to some degree, in some way, there are changes that are left behind. When God comes in and, and regenerates a person, gives them all of the, like the new heart, like I talked about, his Holy Spirit, there are inevitable differences in a person. There, there just are. Okay, like there are, and what we're going to talk about today um, is uh, holiness. It's going to manifest and look a certain way. Um, not everybody will manifest, not everybody will look to the same degree like everyone else. There will be uh, similarities and overlaps. There will be people who are um, deficient in the sense that they're, they're not what they ought to be. Like this person is more sanctified and farther along, uh, as it's been said, longer in the hospital. And then this, this person is um, tr- striving to grow in holiness. So people are at differing levels in their sanctification. But there are marks of someone who has had God come through their life and take them and arrest them and save them. Uh, letter B, Zacchaeus. Brother, will you read Luke 19, 5 to 10, please? That's right. That's right. So in this pic, thank you, brother. In this picture, you, you see someone who is encountered by God, like Jesus has come to him, and he was, he was a tax collector. He was despised among the people because he worked for the Romans, though he was a Jew, and he was hated. And so you have, you have Christ come to him and change him fundamentally. And because of that, there's this response of, I'm going to pay all these people back that I've, I've stolen from. Okay, so it's just a picture of when Christ comes and he saves a person. This is the kind of response that happens. Um, brother, could you read the Philippians 3? Or, I'm sorry, yeah, 3, 5 to 8. Thank you. And actually, I I should have had you start at 4B probably. So Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in his flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to list bullet point style, all the different accomplishments that he had as a religious person. Okay, so um, you have someone like Paul, who's not like Zacchaeus, someone like Paul who apparently has it all together on the outside. He has this veneer of religiosity sort of on the outside of him. Um, But after seeing his need, seeing Christ confront him on the road to Damascus, and seeing what he actually was, what his actual condition was, 
Um, he counted all those things as actually a negative. Those things are actually dung, he says. These things are rubbish. I count them as nothing um, uh, compared to knowing Christ. So it's, it's, it's a, a picture of someone who is even as pious looking as Paul, seeing that there, is not be, there has not been a true reconciliation with God. There has not been an, a thing where my sin is dealt with. So those, those are all pictures of what a converted person looks like. So kind of like a summary statement, the new birth and conversion of a sinner, if true, will always result in a changed life toward holiness. So um, I don't know if, if you guys remember, but back in the 80s or 90s, I can't remember which it was, there was this um, controversy that was going on called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And anybody know what I'm talking about when I say that? There it is. The, I think it was started because John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, and there was another scholar who wrote against it. So The Gospel According, according to Jesus, I think it was written end of the 80s, and John MacArthur was arguing that if someone is actually saved by the Lord, good works will follow. Christ is not only Savior, giving me his grace and I'm saved. He is the Lord and I will follow him. Okay. Um, so I forget the name of the other guy and I forget where he comes from. He's, he's at a seminary. He, um, he argued and I think wrote a work against it that no, when Jesus comes, he saves a person and it doesn't matter what results. A person is saved by grace alone. And if that's true, a person then can live um, uh, not live the way they ought to and still be saved because God's grace is that good. Okay. And I'm sure that when that hits us, when you hear that, that strikes us as like, well, God's grace is that good. That is true. But what I'm trying to emphasize here is that God's grace always results in a changed life. That's just what happens according to scripture. It's all over scripture. Um, I think, and I think the proof text he would pull from is in first Corinthians where it talks about, um, Paul, he, Paul particularly calls um, the, the Corinthians carnal in, in, the, in 1 Corinthians. And so there's like this sort of separate category. You have believers and unbelievers, but in the believer side, they're kinda, you can have two different strands. You can have those who are um, following the Lord the way they ought, and then there's like these carnal Christians. They're saved, but they are not walking in holiness the, the way they ought to but they have the grace of God because God's grace is a free gift. And that's just a false dichotomy. That's not how scripture portrays it. So um, just I wanted you to be made aware of that particular controversy um, because we are those, particularly at this church, that, that totally believe that if God has done a work, we are going to have and manifest holiness. So um, point number two, we're going to focus on conversions, results, holiness, and sanctification. Last Last time we got together, we talked about this thing called the Ordo Salutis, um, the order of salvation. And we, we kind of talked about how, like, if you look in Scripture, sort of, if you were to take a timeline from the beginning to the end of uh, the order in which God saves a person, um, there's differing opinions to some degree on how and when all of these timings happen, but it's generally something like God elects, he predestines someone to be saved in eternity past. In real time, he calls them, and that person is then given the new birth, they're regenerated, and then they are converted, they repent and believe by faith, and then 
at the moment of faith, they are justified because we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. And we're adopted and then we're sanctified and then eventually we will be glorified when we're with the Lord. In that process somewhere, and I don't know that I could tell you where, but God does this thing where he makes us holy. Um, and the definition of holiness is kind of like a differentness. It's an otherness, something um, separate, something um, that is different from something else. Um, if, if you think of the word holiday, we celebrate holidays, and really what that is is a kind of a contraction of two words, a holy day. And we have a certain day that's set apart that's not like other days. It's not common like other days. And so we do something different that day. So in the same way, God takes a, he takes you and me and he says, you're mine, you're set apart. I've chosen you, you're set apart. And it doesn't speak to the quality of the thing being chosen. Um, so for example, let me ask you this question. Um, point C here, can anyone think of a, of people or items in scripture that were set apart by God and sanctified. Anybody think of anything in scripture? Yes. So a people, Israel, and God particularly says, um, it wasn't because I didn't choose you because you were more mighty than other nations. In other words, there wasn't something attractive about you or something that made me, pick you guys as opposed to the Canaanites or as opposed to the, you know, whoever. So, yeah, Israel, any, anything else you guys can think of? Even within Israel, what are some things that were set apart for particular use by the Israelites? Things of the temple, like what? What kinds of stuff? The altar, yeah, right? Common things. Think of things in your kitchen. Not in your kitchen, but I mean like in Israel that would kind of be in the, in the temple and stuff. Like they, they had like pots and stuff, you know, they would be boiling meat and they would have like different, certain utensils and stuff that they would use that were set apart for the Lord's use, for the, for the priest's use. You know, altars, you have, um, you have the table of showbread, you have uh, all the different furniture in the temple, all of these different things, the vestments that they wore, the ephod that they would have, all of these things were not just their normal everyday garb that they wore. It is something set apart, for particularly for this use. Okay, uh, They would have a certain turban that they would have on their head. Okay, So those, those are, um, that's the idea. There's kind of two different parts to holiness. One is you're set apart, and the other part is there is a practical side of holiness. So um, can anyone uh, kind of tell me in their, from their personal testimony how you changed after your conversion and what holiness looked like in, in you? Like you once were something and you walked a certain way, but how did God, what ways did God change you? And you started walking in holiness. You don't have to get nitty-gritty or crazy or anything. I'm just saying, if anyone wants to share, it's always good to hear that. I'm going to call on my wife if you guys don't answer. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, that's that's how it was for me too. It was like just wanted to eat up the word. That's right. Anybody else? You want? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obedience to parents when you were a kid. That's great. Anybody else? Yes, babe. Yeah, so Sophia is saying that it, um, certain friends that were part of her life before she was converted, um, she had a new relationship with them. It turned into evangelism instead of it being just a um, like fellowship in darkness together and do go off and do whatever. It, it had to do with a, a, a new now relationship where they were probably repelled by her because of the fact that she was different and new. Anybody else? So now I want to kind of shift over to indicatives and imperatives. I think this is a good thing to bring up. Um, indicatives, does anybody know what an indicative is versus an imperative in Scripture? Who can tell us? Yes. Yes, very good. So an indicative is talking about, like you said, indicative is this is what's happened just for the recording. An imperative is this is what must happen. So an indicative talks about something that is. It's like a fact about something. An imperative is a command. Um, I think this is the funniest thing. This is the funniest sort of example of an imperative indicative. Stephen Colbert, and I, I don't recommend him, but I'm just saying that he wrote a book called I Am America and So Can You, <laughs> which is just the funniest of imperative indicative sort of title. So um, if we look at... Uh, some of Paul's epistles and even Peter, there's this pattern like uh, where, where Paul lays out, this is who you are in Christ, okay? You have been called, like we talked about, you've been chosen. Think of Ephesians chapter 1. You have been chosen. Um, think of Peter. You are a royal priesthood. You are um, set apart, you are given a new nature. You've been made alive in Christ. These are things that you didn't do. They happened to you. This is your state. This is who you are. You have been converted and you are a believer. You're justified, which means you have been declared free of all blame. All of your sins have been blotted out as if they never were. Christ took them on himself, on his, on, uh, in his body on the tree. Um, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is all fact. Okay, Paul does that a lot. Like Romans 1 to 11 is just all about that. It's just like, this is your position in Christ. Romans, uh, Romans 6 is like, you've died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been risen with Christ. Um, Romans 8 is, uh, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's just all like, this is who you are, Christian. But you get to 
Romans 12, and he's like, therefore. So Romans 12 says, the downside of looking on your phone is that you click wrong buttons. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there is this, since this is what you are, command, now go be holy is the result. Same thing in Ephesians, like we're, I was kind of saying earlier, you have that, I mean, talk about glorious language about the, the position of the believer in Christ. If we just take chapter 2 alone and just talk about but God, like I said earlier, who is rich in mercy, and just take that whole section, I mean, that's like food for the believer's soul. Amen? That is like, you're taking that in, you're like, I'm resting I'm resting on Christ. This is good. Chapter 4 comes, and he gives the imperative. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you can think of in Colossians, where it's a similar sort of setup at the beginning, where... Paul is talking about um, he's he's talking about how Christ is the head of the church, and he's just all these indicatives about how he's taken that record of debt that stood against you away, nailing it to the cross. And in chapter three, it says, "Since then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are of the earth." And then he goes on to say. Um, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurities, passions, all of these different things. He goes on to say, put on and, and take off. Is that kind of put on and take off language, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think that's good for indicatives imperatives, but I just want to focus on that because that is the model of Scripture. Paul does expect those who have been converted to then walk in holiness. So, Next section is we want to look at real healing is being made holy. Okay, so letter A. Point A, we need healing, but it can't be light. So in our last class, we talked about that Jeremiah 6 passage where the people of God were not right with the Lord. They were walking sinfully before the Lord. And the priests... We're supposed to be over them to be able to say, you're in sin. You're walking not as God has commanded. Repent. But instead, they said, no, peace. Peace. And the scripture says, when there is no peace, there was no peace. God was, they were not right with God. And yet, and yet the priests were condoning what they were doing. You're saying, peace, you're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. You know? So um, the, the idea of healing cannot be light. If we look at this Isaiah passage, Isaiah 1, 4 to 6, it reads like this. Actually, I have it right here. It says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Which sounds a lot like, if you were here last time, that Jeremiah 6 passage. 
Israelites are the same way in this passage too. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or banded up or softened with oil. So the picture of Israel <clears throat> is that it's not just something that requires a band-aid. From the bottom of the feet to the top of the head, there is something gravely wrong. And it is fatal. And it is not enough just to heal the wound lightly. Something more drastic has to happen. And the way God accomplishes this is by conversion. And this starts the process of creating a new person in the likeness of Christ. What is that process called? Sanctification. Where God is, over time, making us little by little, more and more like Him. Where we're learning to put sin to death and to put on Christ and to walk in righteousness. Um, Subpoint here, it says, physical and emotional healing is not deep enough. Um, in this world, it's, it's very common to um, see all around us physical brokenness, emotional brokenness. It's all over the news. It's all over the internet. It's, it's all over social media. It's in our families. It's in us. We have um, these, these sicknesses and issues and problems, and it's just a result of being in this fallen world. And the thing is, is that all of that, as bad as it is, is if that alone were healed, that would not cut deeply enough. What God means to do in conversion is to heal the whole person. So when he saves you and he saves me, he is not just dealing with this emotional issue that you have on, uh, going on. If you have anxiety within you and you're fraught with um, um, like anxi uh, anxiety attacks, God may or may not heal that when he comes and saves you. But if he were to heal just that and leave you in your sin, obviously that's not deep enough. Okay? Um, if someone is uh, an invalid and not able to walk and are bound to a wheelchair for the rest of their life, if God were to come to that person and heal that physical malady and say, rise and walk, and that person is able to get up and yet they are still in their sins, we can all see that that's not deep enough. If that was the case, if Jesus just came and healed that person, that would not cut deep enough. There's a cool picture of this in, um, in Mark chapter 2. If you guys would turn there. Mark chapter 2. You guys are familiar with this story. Mark chapter 2. You have the paralytic. It says, verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathering together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him uh, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, to the, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioned in their hearts, saying, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So this is a lot of different things. This is an amazing story, but it is also a picture of the power, uh, the mission of Jesus. Remember, what does Jesus' name mean in Matthew 1? They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, what? Save his people from their sins. What was the big double take that the, the everyone had to do when he came? When they realized that he wasn't going to deal, uh, I just kind of answered. But do you remember that double take that everybody had to do, or the triple take, where it's like, um, people are starting to realize he's not going to come and overthrow the Romans now. I thought the Messiah was supposed to come and make everything right. And he doesn't seem too interested in overthrowing the Romans. Jesus' mission is to come and deal with the most fundamental problem that we have, which is our sin. And, he, and that was his mission. So in this particular uh, scene here, What's interesting is that Jesus is showing his authority to be able to forgive sin. That's an awesome point. But also what's awesome is that he is dealing with this man's sin when the most obvious outward problem is he's a paralytic. He's on a bed being carried by people, brought down from the roof, hasn't moved in a long time or, it, or has been like this his whole life. And Jesus talks about his sin. Think about this. You're with someone who is paralyzed. And you start talking to them about their sin as the biggest problem. You might hesitate to be like, well, that's insensitive. Or, or the most obvious, it's just like this is the most obvious issue in their life seems to be outwardly that they can't move, that they can't walk, that they can't do what we do. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's the most important thing. Um, there's lots more we could say on that passage. It's such a good passage. Um, so let's kind of move on to point C. So I want to sort of in bullet point fashion talk about uh, to be holy is to be set apart. And then point D is unto a new master. Point E is with new affections. So point C, to be holy is to be set apart. Um, if we read, can I have a, um, someone read 1 Peter 2.9 for us? I promise you it's an excellent passage. Who would like to read it? 1 Peter 2.9. Why, thank you. <laughs> very good 
Thank you. So that language, those titles that Peter is talking to the church with, those should ring us, ring in our minds back to the Old Testament. He calls them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is totally Old Testament language. That is totally how God would speak to Israel in the Old Testament. We kind of already touched on this, but just briefly, sort of again, um, there are ways in the Old Testament, like we said, that God marked out things as holy. One way we haven't talked about that God marked out his people as holy is circumcision. In Genesis chapter 12, um, God, not, not 12, I'm sorry, 15 or 17, I think 17, says uh, to Abram that he is to be circumcised and everyone in his family is to be circumcised and any babies that are born are to be circumcised on the eighth day and any male servants are be, to be circumcised. And the point of the circumcision was this was a sign of my covenant that I made with you in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This covenant God made with him. And then he cut that covenant. Remember when they were out um, and there was a fire and he put Abraham in a deep sleep, Abram at the time in a deep sleep. And you remember that there was like the smoking pot and, and a sacrifice of an animal and God sort of, he, he did all that. Um, well, in this particular picture, um, there is a setting aside of Abraham in this circumcision and his descendants. You are different than the other nations. You remember what, do you remember what um, uh, David called Goliath as kind of like a smack talk in a sense? In a sense. What, did he, what did he call him in regards to circumcision? You uncircumcised Philistine. I'm sure he said it just like that. You uncircumcised Philistine. Uh, and the people of God are those who were circumcised. You are not a follower of the Lord. You are not chosen by the Lord. Okay, so it's kind of a picture of like there's a differentness there. Um, if we look at Colossians 2.11, bear with me here, Colossians 2.11 says, relating circumcision to us, says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We were like Goliath. We were uncircumcised. Um... But God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then it goes on in Colossians. Well, so to stop for a sec. So really what is necessary, and in the Old Testament too, I would argue, is that the believer had to have a circumcised heart. It wasn't enough that a person was just outwardly a person uh, uh, in the people of God. That marked them out as part of God's assembly. But a person to be saved needed, like Abraham, to, be, uh, to believe by faith and to be justified. It wasn't enough that they were outwardly doing works. It's not like in the Old Testament they had to, by works, be saved. They needed an inward circumcision of the heart. Okay, 
And that is, that is true, and it carries into the New Testament. So um, Paul continues on, like I said, in Colossians 3, and he has this kind of language. Uh, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, taking that language from the Old Testament, holy and beloved, um, put on compassion, uh, compassionate hearts, put on kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the person who has been set apart and chosen by God, and God says, you are mine, that person is then expected to be different than the world. They are expected to be as Christ would be. Okay, Not in an effort to ever earn anything, it's all because it's been done. The indicative is in place. The imperative now comes from someone who has a new heart, someone who has new affections, who follows a different master, who has this inclination, like I talked about last time, where you're turning from sin and you're turning to Christ and you are following Christ. That speed of following Christ might look fast, where you're just darting after Christ at time, at times, or it may look like a slow roll, but it is an inclination of the, of the inner man to go forward towards Christ, to repel against sin. Even though we may dabble in sin, even though there is um, spans of time where, where we could even, as believers, um, be in a sinful sort of backslidden state, there is a real fact in a believer that, that as a believer we cannot stay there and that that will be repulsive to us and we will turn back to Christ. Secondly, right here, not only is holiness to be set apart, it's to be set apart unto a new master. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And then in that context, having to do with sexual immorality. So he's like, and so honor God with your body. Okay, You are under a different master now. This is really made super clear in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which says this. I'm sorry, no, 6.22. It says which says but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God the fruit you get you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life okay we were slaves to our own sin but now that we're in Christ verse 11 says don't count yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't use your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You are not under the law anymore. You are under grace. And here it says you have a new master. And this language may chafe us a little bit because it's talking about the language of slave and master. But this is God's language. And he's saying, I am your master, but I'm a good master. Okay, He's a lot of things to us, right? He's our father. Okay, we have to think of all of the different ways he relates to us. But in this particular text, he is our master and we follow him. He tells us what we should do and we follow him. And that is the desire of the converted person's heart. And then lastly, with new affections, with new affections, 1 John 4, 
verse 7. First John 4, verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, there is an inevitable change in our affections when we are saved and converted. Okay, You can't be a, a converted person and say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but hate the brethren, First John says. I don't want to go to church. And I don't care about these people. I can do church here in my home. I'm fine. I'm, that is in no way implying anything about COVID, by the way. If people are staying home for COVID, that, that's different. What I'm saying is it's definitely easy um, for unbelievers to stay away from the people of God. What is really, what, and what it reveals is that there is no love for those people because there's really no love for God himself. But the, the normal experience of a converted person is that there is a love for God, which was not there before. And now a love for the people of God. And honestly, a love for all people because we desire that all men be saved. All right, finally, <clears throat> our last implications. Let's look at this. To the believer. Some implications that we can draw from how holiness happens uh, in us. Believer, God has sanctified and will sanctify you. You can rest on that. Philippians 1.6 that we know so well, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this, this work of him perfecting us and making us like Christ is going to start, will start in every converted person, and it will finish, and we will be glorified um, because of his work in us. Galatians 4.19 is a really sweet sort of side verse. It's, it's one of those verses you hesitate to use as a, as a text for what you're teaching because it's in the middle of like an argument and it's just kind of like in passing he says this, but I think it's worth saying. So uh, Galatians 4.19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And that is that is the kind of what's going on in sanctification, right? It is God has given us his Holy Spirit and God is putting the image of Christ back into us. Little by little, we are looking more and more and more like Christ. And it, it doesn't necessarily always look like I just did. There's like a, you step back and then you step forward a little longer and then you step back and then you, but over time, the if you were to step back and look at the course of your life, this is a progression towards Christ-likeness. And if you're in Christ, you can rest assured God is doing this and will complete it. Christ is being formed in you. The true image of God. Second thing. So if this is true of you, believer, you are sanctified and you're being sanctified. Be what you are. Okay? Be what you are. So in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this. 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay? Like I said in Romans 6.11, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? We have, as a converted people, a different relationship with sin that one than what we once had when we were living in it, where it was fun to practice sin and we were getting good at it, okay? First John has some really harsh things to say to people who are claiming to be in Christ. They're in the church. Like, for example, in First John chapter 3, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, skip down to verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those types of verses are some of the most sobering types of verses, right? Those types of verses hit us and you're like, wait, so but, like if I'm measuring myself up against these verses, what does that mean for me? Because I definitely keep sinning. And what John is getting at here is that there is a, a practice of sin where we are comfortable in that sin and we are not repentant. The thing that makes a Christian different is not that they do not sin, not that we do not sin. It's that when we sin, we repent. At some point, we repent and we turn away from it and we are inclined toward God and we trust in Christ. Okay? What's tricky is that if someone is an unbeliever, they can, like, hate the consequences of that and have like a worldly sort of sorrow and sort of be repelled by that and kind of come to Christ but not really trust him. That, that's what makes it difficult when we hear someone talk about that. And you're like, I don't know if this person's a believer. It seems like they are. Or maybe when we struggle with assurance in ourselves, is that, am I doing that? Am I just an unbeliever who's turning, like, because I don't like the consequence of it and I'm not really truly trusting in Christ. Okay, those are th sort of things that come up. But know this, that no Christian in this life is going to be perfect. This we know. But it is the posture of the heart of love toward God because he has saved us from so great a destruction. Because he is who he is. Because he is beautiful like Ryan talked about in I think the second talk. Where we see like that, uh, that master artist creates that that beautiful painting on the wall we've been getting in the, in the cave. And we have now had the lights on and we can see that painting and, and we just can marvel at it. It was great last week with uh, Ryan Troglin going through Psalm 19 and talking about um, the excellencies of creation and how God displays that and also in his word. Lastly, for the believer, God mainly uses his word to sanctify you. John 17, 17, that go-to text for sanctification by the word says, sanctify them, John, uh, Jesus speaking in his high priestly prayer the, the night before he's crucified, says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So my, my encouragement to you is to not neglect the word because that is the, the very means by which we are sanctified mainly under the word of God. That could be being in the word yourself. Do not neglect your own Bible time. Do not neglect getting away and getting in your word and marinating in the word. Do not neglect um, coming to service and being underneath the preached word. 
it says that Jesus ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. And he said he gave um, uh, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. I know I messed that up. Uh, for the equipping of the saints, for the edification of the body. So come and be edified and built up in the faith. And, and, and God will grow us thereby. So be encouraged, believer, that um, he will sanctify us, that uh, we can be what we are because we've been given the capacity to do it. And let us go and do it in the word. And to the unbeliever, if anyone is here and in hearing all of this, that it just strikes you as like, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'm a, a Christian. I don't know if I truly believe. So the holiness of God is truly a fearful thing. You are standing without knowing it acutely maybe. You are standing before a holy, righteous God. At the end of all things, there is a judgment called the white throne judgment. And the books will be opened. The books of all containing all those who have been chosen from the foundation of the world and have been and will be or have been saved. And then the books uh, the book that will be opened of all those who would not believe and those who are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And so God has appointed this time at the, right now for anyone who doesn't believe in Christ to hear the good news that Jesus was sent to take away sin. He came into the world completely righteously kept the law and he went willingly to the cross, lowered himself became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, he bore the sin of all who would ever believe in him. He was punished in the place of sinners like us. The Father punished Jesus with, with, with the fury of his wrath towards sin so that if anyone trusts in him, we may be cleansed, we may be saved. All of our sin would be blotted out and would be forgiven. That's the hope that, that's laid out to anyone who, um, who's given ears to hear. So I say it to you guys, flee from the wrath to come, anyone who, does, who is not in Christ. Trust in Christ by faith. He died, was buried, and rose. Trust in Christ. And then lastly, just in passing, because we're going to have like a whole section on assurance in the last talk. Um, just to the one lacking assurance. Um. In all of these things, I know that I have struggled with assurance um, at times in the past. And when I hear First John type passages, that kind of hits me a certain way. And um, what it will always come back to is that hymn, like we talked about last time, is that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All, um, all we can do is say, when, when we struggle with assurance as believers, we say, Lord, I'm struggling and I need you to graciously give me assurance. If I need to repent of certain things that are rocking my assurance, Reveal those to me that I may turn from them by faith or, and turn to you by faith. If I'm trusting, um, if I'm looking so inwardly at myself that I am not looking at you, as someone put it, I forget who said it, may I have 10 looks at Christ for every one look at myself. 
may I not dwell on myself. Or as somebody said, navel gaze, just constantly <laughs> looking inward. May I look to Christ. Christ is the surest and strongest assurance we can have. May we look at him and trust in him. Um, does anyone have any questions or points or things that this may be stirred up thoughts in your head you want to share with the group? Um, this would be a great time because I, I know there's definitely a lot of wisdom in the room that, that could be shared and love to hear it. Love to hear from you. Anybody? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll dismiss. It was, um, it was sweet to be in the word with you this morning. Um, let's, it, you'll be going out a little early and I apologize, but I'm sure you'll make your way where you need to be. There's coffee downstairs. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, revealing to us the work that you do in us when you convert us, the work that you do that you did not have to do you could have left us in our sin. We could have been lost without any hope in the world whatsoever. Um, but God, God, you gave us grace. You provided all that we have, all these gifts. You have saved us um, when we could never, ever, ever, ever save ourselves. You did this work in us, so we're thankful, God. Help us to go and be holy as we are holy or go and be holy as you are holy and you have made us holy. Help us to go walk in that holiness. Help us to be what we are. Be merciful to us. Help us to walk in a way that pleases you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.